So as you're in Titus 2, I want you to direct your eyes to the screen because in light of the calibration process, I want to remind you of a few things we've gone through. So let me, let me show you some of the things that we've talked about. In light of the calibration process this far, we've talked about elders needing to be qualified, right? A certain characteristic, they, th- this need in the calibration process to rebuke those who bring false teaching, this, this need for godly older men, this need for exemplary older women, this need for submissive younger women, this need for self-controlled younger men, and this need for submissive, well-pleasing servants, wherever we find ourselves in light of the calibration process. So I have a, a, a few questions now I, I want to ask. And the question is this, why? I mean, we've talked about, we've talked so much about all of these different areas of life that need to be tuned, that need to be calibrated, and some pretty intense calibration, some things that would actually cause inconvenience and even suffering in our life, a, a very selfless lifestyle. So the, the question is this, is this just rules that are being heaped on us? Why? Why would Christians devote themselves to these type of things? Big question, why? And then there's a second question. The question is this, how? So, so why would we? But then if we are going to devote ourselves to good works or this type of calibration, how in the world would we? How would we be able to accomplish these commands. I'm going to answer it right now. This is what our passage is answering. It's like Paul almost has these in the back of his head and he's going to answer it with this, with the grace of God. You know, if I said, I got a bag of bugs here, I got some tarantula, I got some roaches, you know, I got, a, I got some water bugs. Have you ever seen those things? Disgusting. Some caterpillars. I just got a whole conglomeration of bugs here. Church, come over here and eat one. Who's signing up for that? Anybody? If you raise your hand, I want to talk with you after and get to know you. You're very interesting. <laughs> no one's going to want to eat any bug. Come on, man. Depending on where you're from, right? These are becoming a delicacy. So maybe if I cooked up the bug in the right way, then maybe, right? But come on, I'm not doing that. You think about fear factor, but people were willing to eat the most disgusting things on the planet for just even the slightest chance of a certain amount of money. But, but, but this why and this how go even deeper when we're talking about the grace of God and why we would be a church devoted to God changing our life to be like his son, Jesus. It's more like this. What if I said, hey, your family's life depended on you eating bugs. Your whole family in danger of death or people you love in danger of dying depended on you eating one of these. Now we're all flooding to the front, aren't we? I mean, you, you know it's gonna be gross. You know it's gonna be hard but you're going to do it anyway because you know that that's worth doing because of what is at stake. I think you see where I'm bringing this. Every person born onto planet earth is condemned already, lost in darkness, and they will experience death. The Bible says this, it is appointed for man to die once, Hebrews tells us, and after this comes judgment Salvation is what people need. 
and they will only see salvation through the light of the gospel and the light will only shine in darkness unless there's people who are the light shining it in darkness. The same way Jesus showed up and the light shone on people and their eyes were open and they began to clearly see who they were and who they are and what God is bringing them to save them was found in Jesus. And Jesus has left us on earth as we learn in John 14 through 50 and he has gone away preparing a place for you. And he's gonna come back and get you. But until then, he's left you on earth to devote yourself to good works, to let your life be radically transformed so you're different than the world so that they see the light and you're willing to do whatever it takes to save them. First Corinthians nine, Paul shared this heart. He said, I've become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. Paul, in talking about his rights, I'll lay down any right Any right that I have as a person or even an apostle, I put it to the side for the sake of others' lives. And now we're not even talking about their lives. We're talking about the souls, eternal lives. Perspective helps, doesn't it? This this is what Paul is bringing us to in Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two, let me turn there with you. This is where Paul is culminating everything he's talked about. In light of the calibration process The grace of God is why we do it. And not only this, the grace of God is how we do it. We're gonna see that as well. So let's talk about the grace of God. What is it? What is the grace of God? Let me give you a few definitions. Literally, the word is unmerited favor. God is giving you favor. He's extending it to you and it's unmerited. You didn't work for it. It's giving us what we do not deserve. And then simply this, It is a gift. Romans tells us the gift of God, the free gift of God. I want to give you a a personal, a definition that I've written here for you. How about this? Think about the grace of God like this. God freely giving us what we desperately need but do not deserve and are unable to obtain in ourselves. But let let me finalize exactly what the grace of God is. The grace of God is a person, Jesus Christ. Christmas is upon us, right? We're thinking about gifts, extending a gift to someone. It's something that you just give to people. What has God given us? He's given us his grace. What is his grace? It's a person. Everything that we need is found and wrapped up in the man, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the grace of God today, and I'm going to refer, it's going to sound strange because I'm going to talk about the grace of God, but I'm going to refer to the grace of God not as an it, but as a he. Do you understand that? Because we're talking about Jesus Christ, everything we need found in him. So here's what I want to show you today. And by the way, I'm very excited to preach this message. It's one of my favorite verses of scripture. Todd and I even... uh, uh, did like a little exercise to figure out who would preach this because we both wanted to preach this message so badly. If there's any message that, that I could like ask that you listen to in the last year, it'd be this one. All of them are important, but this is the one that I would want to proclaim to my church, my brothers and sisters, and to the world. I'd be stuck on an island with this passage. So it's, you're going you're gonna to see that um, passion even in what I'm about to show you here. I want to give you five reasons to make the grace of God the most urgent 
passionate desire of your life. There, there's, there's, I'm, I'm in, implying a little bit that maybe we don't make the grace of God urgent in a sense of like, wow, this is extremely important and time sensitive, urgent and then passionate as in like the thing that I want. I know what it's like to have passions and desires and want things above everything that I could ever want. What I want is the grace of God. And who am I talking about, church? Jesus. I'm talking about the person, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's turn our eyes to the passage as we talk about these five urgent, passionate reasons. Remember the little tagline we've given to our series, Calibrated? A church that works not for salvation, but what? Because of salvation. Now, the very first word you see up there says for. This can be confusion, confusing, but I want to help you understand how this for actually means because. Paul is using the word for here in the same way you use the word because. Even the Greek word can be translated because. And that's exactly how Paul is using it. He said everything through chapters one through two, and now he's ending chapter two, and he says everything about elders and, and false teachers and men and women. And he says for, or you could replace it like this, because... Because what? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. First reason to make the grace of God the most urgent, passionate desire of your life is this, because he's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can save you. Now, this one I don't think we struggle with. I think, I think this is where... I'm going to make an assumption. I think this is where most of us, our thoughts of the grace of God begin and end. And I hope you're going to see today that the grace of God extends way past just reveling in the salvation that God has brought you. It begins there, but it does not end there. And I'm hoping today you'll leave and the grace of God will begin afresh in your mind and you'll begin to see the width and the depth of the grace of God in your life. But first and foremost, what we rejoice in, what we praise and what we're wanting our friends, family and people in the world to come to know is that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ alone. Let me talk a little bit about salvation. It says this, for the grace of God, a person has appeared this idea is it showed up and you're gonna see the, the word appear show up again a little bit later when talking about Jesus who we're awaiting for, who's gonna appear. We're talking about Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared. For Jesus Christ has appeared and brought something with him. Salvation for all people. Now we need to talk about salvation. That implies if you need to be saved, that means you have something perilous on your life that you need to be saved from, right? It's, it's strange to talk about salvation but never mention the danger you are in. Like, man, I got saved yesterday. You wanna know immediately, what did you get saved from? Whether it was in a car crash or from uh, being stuck out in the middle of the ocean, whatever it is, something showed up and rescued you, saved you. What are we talking about? We're talking about the, 
a physical death that all people are going to experience, but that body is going to die, then that soul which is already dead and condemned is gonna stand before God and the wrath that it has been building up over its whole life, that soul, that man or woman is going to either step into eternity with God into his presence for all of eternity and righteousness or be cast away from his presence for all of eternity in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and they will experience the full deserved wrath of God on their life because they have not believed on the only son of God, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's heart for his creation as people is that they be saved. This is why he's left you here and he's commissioned you to go to the ends of the world making disciples because people need salvation. And by the way, The salvation is for all people. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that all people are automatically saved. It means that salvation is offered to all people, no one excluded. Get the thought out of your mind that, yeah, everyone but me, that's a lie and an accusation from the enemy. And Jesus says that he came for the sick. So the sicker you convince me you are, the more qualified you are for salvation. Get that lie out of your head. Salvation is for all people. Jesus wasn't interested in calling the goody two-shoes to himself. He was interested in healing and helping those who were broken and sick and laden and enslaved by sin. And he wants to free you and help you and save you freely because that's what the grace of God is, the free thing that God's given you that you can't find within yourself and you do not deserve. And we're saved from a destruction that we deserve. By the way, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. So grace and mercy are wrapped up together always. Isn't this good news, church? You believe in Jesus Christ, you have been saved and he's the only one who can do that for you. But yet here we are as a church summit. There's people out in the world right now, millions, even billions of people who are still lost in darkness. And God wants to use you even in wherever you are in the world Though you may think that you're small and insignificant and feeble, you do your part. You devote yourself to the things he's called you to. Let him change you and he will use your life, even if you can't see it. Your submission and your honor to him. Changing your life in the grace of God will expel. And what I mean expel is push the light into the world, even if you don't see it. The grace of God has showed up and has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. Why? Because of the grace of God. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no man can boast. God actually wants it to be so that we have no reason to boast and brag in ourselves. So he does everything for us to save us. Only thing that we're told to do, which is not a work, is to believe. There's no bragging in having faith. You believe. You put your faith in Jesus. You hear the message, you believe it. And now you let it change your life. Which brings us to the next reason to make the grace of God the most urgent, passionate desire of your life. Read the next verse with me. 
He says this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, comma, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Second reason is that he's the only thing that can change you. When I say he, I'm talking about the grace of God. The grace of God is the only thing that can change you. I love this verse because I think that, I think we get saved and rejoice in our salvation and then we continue to try to live in the strength of the law for the rest of our life. And if less we let the word of God attack our mind and push out the urge to want to live according to law for strength, then God will replace it with the grace that you desperately need that will begin to train you and actually start changing your life but left to yourself and in the strength of the law, you will never change. The law will never change you. Do you hear me, church? The law, a command to not or a command to do will never change you. It will only condemn you and help you understand just how weak you are, which is the reason God gave the law. God tells us in the book of Romans that the law was given so that the offense would abound. You hear that? God purposely gave you a law, help you see his standard that was impossible so you could learn it's impossible to do it yourself. It's your schoolmaster, Galatians tells you. It's your schoolmaster that's been teaching you, you need help. And when that help appears, you recognize it and you jump and you grab onto it and you're not letting it go because you've realized through the law teaching you, you can't do it. You're looking and hoping and begging for help and salvation comes. You see it in Jesus and you believe and you hold on to it and you don't let it go and you never go back to this, this, this yoke of bondage that Paul was trying to beg the Galatians. Stop trying to say you need to get circumcised and you need to do this. No, if you do that, you make Christ of no value. It is only through the grace of God. You are no longer under the law, under the grace of God, which means you're under the law of him doing it for you because you can't. Now look back at the passage. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We stop there and then we try to, we try to, we try to change and renounce ungodliness in our own strength. But notice this, that the training to be able to change is still linked the credit to the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, comma, also training you to do what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Work it backwards with me. What does it end with? Present age. You need to feel hope there because you know what that means? That means right now you can be different. The enemy wants you to think you will always be stuck in that addiction. You'll always struggle with pornography. You'll always struggle with alcohol. You'll always struggle with anger. You'll always struggle with gossip. You'll always struggle with loving money. You'll never be able to be out and freed from the bondage of that thing. He wants you to believe it is a part of you. It is your identity and it'll always be with you wherever you go. There's nothing you, should, you can do about it. That's the voice of the enemy. The grace of God has appeared, and not only has he brought salvation for you, but he also will train you 
in the present age, which means right now, not later, right now it is possible to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I think sometimes we take too much of a passive fight against sin and the things that we struggle with. Maybe you're still locked in some type of sin you keep going back to. You can't stop. But I think if you were to gauge your life and look at it and monitor it, you'd find that you'd have a very passive fight against it. You're kind of like curdled in the corner waiting for the attack to stop. It's like, it's like we're waiting for the temptation to go away and then we'll be successful in our mind. And as long as the temptation's there, I'm always struggling, so I gotta give in to it. No, the grace of God is trying to train you, which means it's a process. The same word for like bodily training for, or exercising an athlete. It takes time. God is using every experience and every opportunity for you to find out that you are weak, you can't, but he can, and he's wanting you to do something like Romans 6 says, and that's yield and present your members to him as instruments of righteousness, but you keep presenting your members, you keep taking a very passive presenting disposition towards sin, and it'll always overrule you. You need to take this verse and you need to start asking yourself, how does the grace of God train me? Yes, I believe it, I see it, I know it's possible, I know it's not within me, and all I can think about is terms is don't do and try really hard and exert a lot of effort. How does the grace of God train me to renounce these things? Renunciation, that's an actual active thing, not passive. That's saying no. An active fight in your life to renounce, both in your mind and in your members, renounce the things that are actually evil, but you keep letting these things convince you that they're good and okay in the moment. Paul says, reckon yourselves in Romans 6. Reckon, that means reason within yourself. Your mind needs to know. You need to be telling yourself, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Starts in the mind. The battle is lost there. The grace of God is wanting to do what the law cannot do. Turn to Romans 6 with me. Ungodliness would be a life that is devoted to anything but God. Worldly passions are the actual sensual feelings you have within your, in yourself towards the things you desire. Those strong feelings that you're desperately wanting, you're wanting that to go away in order to win the fight. You don't need those things to go away in order to win the fight. Romans chapter six, verse 15. Paul says this, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart Jesus brought the law of the spirit and grace and it begins in the heart and the mind and I think sometimes we're still stuck in just this outward appearance type thing and these things have not sunk deep into our heart. Become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Another reason sound doctrine is so important. And, have been, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness 
I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Some of you may still be confused like I I don't get how all of this works. I hear these things, they sound hopeful but in my mind they still don't add up as to how God's not gonna give you the answer immediately. He wants you to grow, as Peter says to the people, to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. He wants a relationship with you where you wake up and you go to bed thinking about him, seeking him, putting the yoke of Jesus on and walking with him and learning from him. And he's not gonna zap you with all the information and everything you need in the moment. And when he doesn't, you give up because you want the easy way out. Nope, he's provided his grace for you to save you, but also train you. One of the ways it trains you is every time you fall and you feel condemned, the grace of God is there to say, no, you're not condemned. You do not need to feel any shamed. I've already covered you. My grace abounds more than your sin. And that's what the law doesn't do. The law always condemns. How does it feel when you do something and you know you're wrong and you go to someone and you're, you're hoping that they'll forgive you and you, you feel inside that you deserve their condemnation and their judgment and then you see their face and they just freely forgive you and they hug you and embrace you? What does that make you wanna do for that person? The law doesn't do that. The law is always the finger that's pointing at you, telling you you're wrong. That'll never motivate you. The grace of God is what is undeserved that is being given to you constantly, that's constantly welling up within you, this, this, this compelling love of Christ to live for him. And if living for Christ feels like rigor and it feels like judgment and it feels like nothing but laws and standard, then you're not living according to grace because grace does not make you feel that way. The spirit lifts up. The spirit is not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is there to always say, my grace is more powerful than your sin. I'm still here. I still love you. You are forgiven. Let's pick Pick yourself up, dust your clothes off, and let's keep going. That experience over and over and over. And some of you are still battling with sin, still have something that you're still struggling with, that addiction, that advice, whatever it is. God's on the precipice of bringing you through it, right? Because you're getting sick and tired of it. You're getting to the place where you're starting to renounce it. Live in the grace of God. It will train you to renounce these things. But then it also trains you not only on the no side, but on the yes side to do what? To live self-controlled, sober-minded, right? He's repeating some of these aspects and these qualifications he's given to the, to the apostles and to the younger men. Self-controlled, upright, which means nothing can be thrown to you and, and condemn you. No words could actually condemn you because your life is upright. You're not guilty of anything someone would say about you. And godly lives, a life devoted to him. You cannot get there on your own. You need the grace of God to do that. But that's one of the reasons to make it the most urgent, passionate desire of your life because it's the thing. He's the thing. The only thing that can change you. And he will. Because the scripture says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Third reason to make the grace of God the most urgent urgent, passionate desire of your life is this. He's the only thing that makes the wait worth it. Let me say it again. Jesus is the only thing that makes our wait here on earth worth it. <laughs> Look what he says here. Verse 13. 
comma, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't know when your life is going to end. But what you do know is life here on earth can be filled with great, great joy. It can be filled with many good, exciting, pleasurable things. But one thing is for sure. Sometimes maybe it feels like even more so than the good things is life is filled with tribulation and hardship and pain and suffering. And sometimes it just feels like we're waiting. The Bible says that Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope. I mean, there are people who believe that there's no reason we exist. There's no God, there's no afterlife. It's just this life. And so you just gotta get it while you're alive. And then every death of a loved one they experienced is is filled with nothing but dread and hopelessness. What does it cause in the heart of that person? Why? Nihilism, what's the point? Why do I keep going? What's the point of all of this? And so no wonder people find a little bit of comfort in some type of substance and then drown themselves in it to wait out the days at least feeling good. Or they find some type of distraction to keep their minds from thinking about all the pointlessness and suffering and pain in the world and they do everything they can to keep themselves from having just a moment of having to meditate on the horrid, horrific, terrifying realities that exist on planet earth. Everyone in a sense is looking for something to make the wait worth it but it is only found in Jesus Christ The only thing that will get you through with joy, the things you experience in the life, your own failures and then the circumstances you can't control is the reality that you are waiting for a blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. His first coming, he appeared and he brought salvation. His second coming, he's coming to bring you home. And everything that is in the world that is horrid, that you're done with, will be done with. And there'll be no tears, no crying, no suffering, no more sin, only eternal joy and pleasure. What does Psalm 16 say? In his presence, there is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's like God has opened up believers' minds to see this is not the life you're living for. Stop, stop letting it take your affections. Stop trying to find the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in this life. You never will. Actually, the more you taste to see if the world is good, the more the body that I made and the mind that I made and the chemicals and the dopamine that I made that were meant to respond to me when they respond to the world, your conclusion will be misery. But the fruits of the spirit have no law against them. And the one who yields to the spirit and walks by the spirit will experience peace, love, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You see, God's trying to awaken your mind that my grace is sufficient for you. It can train you. When you're weak, then you're strong. 
You need to get to a place where you realize you can't do it and I can, but I also, with my grace, have given you a constant reminder of what's to come. And when you take your eyes off that, you begin to feel the same way the world feels that has no hope. The grace of God needs to be the most urgent, passionate desire of your life because that's what makes the wait worth it. Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. Fourth reason to make the grace of God the most urgent, passionate desire of your life is this. Read this next verse with me. It says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, comma, and look at this little phrase, who gave himself for us. Church, who gave himself for us. Fourth reason is this, he's the only one that will love you like that. The only one that ever has or ever will. Listen, I know some of you are thinking, oh, but I would give myself for my children, but the giving of yourself will not save them. You are not powerful enough to lay down your life for someone and save them. And by the way, if you laid your life down for your children, you're doing it for someone who's not your enemy. Jesus died for those who hated him. It's more like dying willingly for the person who took your child's life. Would you be willing to do that? You realize you're, everyone is an enemy to God. Everyone's on the other side of the battlefield and they're all fighting with God even if they don't know it. And God's going to win. His cannonball of destruction, his wrath will plow through everyone justfully, righteously. And when all stand before him and face his wrath and his judgment, they will not be able to stand it. But God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us at the right time, Christ died for us. He, he gave, Jesus gave himself up for you for those who were enemies of God. Those who were at the feet of Jesus gambling over his clothes and laughing at him while he's hanging from the cross and agonizing pain. Yeah, he could sit there and think about how hard it was to breathe and how painful it was to feel his nerve endings through his feet and his wrists shooting into his brain telling him something's wrong, feeling every splinter in the back of the open wound from 39 lashes and the bruising as the sweat and the blood's dripping in his eyes from a crown of thorns that was beaten to his head with sticks, looks down at the people gambling over his clothes and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He's the only one that will ever love you like that, ever has or ever will. He's worth it. God very much wants us to understand his love towards us. Would you turn with me again to the book of Ephesians? I want to show you some things. Ephesians chapter two, verses four and five. Ephesians two, four and five. But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us. It's like Paul knows he can't use words to help us understand the depth of his love. So he's trying his best. The great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved. Now I want you to also turn to chapter three of Ephesians verses 18 and 19. Chapter three, 18 and 19, he says this. Paul prayed Verse 14, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he prayed on behalf of the Ephesians. Look at verse 18. That they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Your time spent on planet Earth is well spent seeking to understand better the love of God towards you in Christ Jesus. Because here's what Paul's saying. We don't understand it. And he knows that if God opens our eyes to give us greater understanding of how much we're loved, it'll change us. It'll change our desires. We'll begin to truly see these things that we run to in the world that we need to renounce. It won't be hard to renounce those things because we're falling in love with the one who's more important than those things. Man, it's impossible to let go of stuff you love to chase something you don't love. So we need to love God more than these things and then you gladly give it up. Gladly eat the bugs. Continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. He's the only one that'll ever love you like that. Let's go back to Titus. The fifth reason to make the grace of God the most urgent, passionate desire of your life is this. He's the only one that can restore your lost identity and purpose. Very important. Remember, Paul's been talking to Titus and reminding them about why they would devote themselves to these works, to be a church that works. He's giving them the perspective. Look what he says here at the end of two. He says, who gave himself for us for a reason to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself up for you, but the grace of God does not stop with just being saved. Do you see this now? It begins there. God not only saves you because he loves you, but he saved you because there's a because, and it's to redeem you. That's free you from all lawlessness. The sin that had been enslaving you, that had power over you, he's freed you from that. Which is why no Christian should ever think that a sin in their life is impossible to get rid of. Because God has freed you from it. You are still in the flesh and you're weak in the flesh and the flesh cannot overcome it. But through the spirit, by the grace of God, he can change you. You have to let him. You have to yield to him. But he 
did this for a reason, to redeem you from all lawlessness. You get a a real good picture of what lawlessness in the book of Judges is because that's when people get to do what's right in their own eyes. You know what it turns into? It turns into all these factions of people, everyone against each other and killing each other and hating each other. It's wicked. It's horrible. But that's what mankind does left to its own. God frees us from that. Then he does, not only after he frees us, then he begins to do something in you in this what? And to purify for himself. God has something that he wants from you and he's gonna do in you and it's this purification process. The Bible teaches us what purification looks like. It's fire burning and cleansing all the impurities away. Guess what the fire is in your life? It's life itself. Sometimes it's like we're, we're waiting for this relationship to Jesus to happen after we can get through all this hard stuff. God's like, no, the hard stuff is what I'm using to purify you and change you. Let it Count it all joy, James says, when you fall into various trials and temptations. Why? Because God's producing steadfastness in you and let steadfastness have its perfect work so you can become mature, the people God wants you to be. Stop begrudging your experiences. Yes, they're hard, but you can't prevent them. God's using them. Step with him alongside these issues and and let God open his mind to the character and the type of person he's trying to make you. And he's using these things to purify you, which involves discipline, correction, teaching, suffering, hardship, encouragement, rebuke, all of it, which is why now it's so important for the church to be working together. But I want you to think about this idea of identity and purpose. I say here that he's the only one who can restore your lost identity and purpose. That's because our identity and purpose has been lost. The moment that our parents ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, they were cast out. That was lost. God's purpose was to create man in his own image, to, to live with and to rule the world with to be his co-regents who are together with him having dominion over the world and multiplying in step with God and that was lost. And the Bible says that each one has gone their own way. None seeks after God. All have gone out into darkness and the whole world is filled with people who have lost their identity and purpose and your soul. What does it do to the soul of a person who has built within them from the God who created the universe and the cosmos as we know it, who holds Saturn in his hands, who creates galaxies and he throws them into the sky and we can see just a fraction of them and they're beyond anything we could measure when he creates something in his image and he puts a purpose and identity in them and it's lost what does it create in that person a misery and a depression and a nihilistic approach to life the world knows that something is wrong I look out into the world and I see LGBTQAI plus and I say yep that makes sense Why? Because people have lost their purpose and their identity and they're desperately trying to find it. But they will not be able to reach for it and find it in the dark. So it makes sense that people would put their identity in their sexuality or their identity in gender because they know that something is wrong. And they're trying desperately to fill that. Christians should be the number one resource for people struggling with identity to say, hey, we found it, it's here. 
Listen, I understand. There should be an understanding. You're in darkness. You, you are unable to seek God on your own. But at least in people who are struggling like that, I can see someone searching, looking, who knows how important identity is. And above all, people in these communities need to stop seeing Christians being against them and pointing the finger at them as if they can come to the light on their own and show them with love the identity that they're looking for, which is in Jesus Christ. You are a person who's been, who's been created that God wants for his own to possess. How good does that feel that the God of creation wants to own you and possess you and to turn you into the person you were meant to be? You will not be able to do that on your own. And so I look out and I see, I see nothing but identity crisis everywhere. It makes sense to me because it's been lost and people in darkness will find identity in something in the dark until their eyes are open to the light and they see their real identity. The enemy knows this. We have a, a devil who's more crafty than any beast of the field and he desperately wants people to stay in the dark and he knows that what God uses to help bring people out of the dark is his church so he knows that he can cause us to, to function with the world in a way that actually keeps the light at bay. And it happens when our minds get back into the law and not into grace. And we begin to point the finger at how wicked the world is. You know what? Look at chapter three of Titus. Look at chapter three. Chapter two, verse two. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Spent way too much time putting all of our evangelistic efforts into campaigns and voting. People will still vote dark if they're in the dark. What is going to change people? The same thing that changed us, the gospel that has shone in our hearts. God's left us here to be a church devoted to good works to help shine that light into other people's hearts. Pay attention to the craftiness and the schemes of the devil of how he works to try to keep the light that we can shine to actually hitting the eyes of those in darkness. And you know what will keep us in the right frame of mind? The mercy and the grace that's on us every single day that we do not deserve, that we haven't earned, that has been given to us freely by God. Last verse, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 13. Turn there with me real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2, Hebrews, James, 1, 2 Peter. I got to get there too. Chapter two, look at verse nine. Talk about identity. Talk about purpose. Do you see it in this verse, this passage? But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, there's identity, and exiles, there's your identity. It's not found in the world. You are here on the world to help it, to save it, to rescue it. You've been sent by God, but you were meant to be in heaven, but you're not there yet. So this is what we are, aliens, sojourners, exiles. He urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see the purpose behind this? We're not just being told to eat bucks. And finally, this identity and purpose. So identity, a child of God who belongs to him. Our identity wrapped up in who Jesus Christ has made us and declares us to be. But then a purpose, what is this? A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Calibrated, a church that works. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. Wants us to be zealous for these good works and now we can be because we rightfully understand that the reason for this zeal and this devotion is because it will save the world in tandem with our proclaiming the gospel at the right time. So we devote ourselves to those things. And then finally this, look at verse 15 of Titus. This is more for pastors, but I do want you to see the conclusion of what Paul's telling Titus concerning everything from chapter one till now, he says this, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Why would he say such a statement? Because this is of utmost importance. So brother, sister, where you at in life? Has the grace of God eluded you? Do you find that you have been spending much of your days trying to live according to the law of God. Yes, you rejoice in the grace that came initially, but it's that same grace that needs to invade and permeate every fiber and being of your life because it's what will change you. It's what will make the weight worth it. Nothing else will love you like God and it's what's going to tell you that you have no reason to ever feel like life is pointless. He's given you your identity and your purpose. Let's take this grace Let it infect our life and let's change the world with it. Let's pray. Father, all of us are still lacking things in our body. We are weak. That shouldn't discourage us. That should actually encourage us because we're all in it together. No one's perfect. Even Paul said, I have not yet arrived. Glorification, which is the complete process of perfection, only happens when we meet you face to face in eternity. But you promise us that in the process, you are going to change us and sanctify us. Your salvation came and immediately you began a work. You're gonna complete it. We need this encouragement. So remove the enemy's voice where he's convinced us to rest and his words and back into the law. And God, help us to put our eyes onto the summit, your grace, onto Jesus Christ that has appeared and brings and gives everything we could ever need. 
God, stir our affections for Jesus to love him and to yield to your spirit. We are your people. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen.